Luke 22, verses 39 through 46 is the prayer of Jesus, uh, scene of Jesus' prayer in the Mount of Olives. It was in a place called Gethsemane. And according to John 18, a small garden. Here Jesus prayed before he walked through his paths of his suffering. It was thus a prayer he offered before he was bound, mocked, delivered into the hand of Gentiles, interrogated, condemned, cut, and put to death. So it is a prayer which is offered in the dark shadow of his cross. In this prayer, Jesus expressed his coming suffering cross uh, and cross as a cup. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, but not my will, but thine be done. Why does Jesus express his suffering as cup to drink? For what reason does he regard his cross as a cup to take? This cup is a metaphor which contains a deep and heavy historical reality. I hope that the Holy Spirit shines on our souls so that we can realize the weight of his suffering our Lord has gone through, and we can give thanks and praises to God with all our souls and with all our hearts. Now let's enter the word of Jesus' prayer. We'll look at three things here. First is the image of Jesus standing before this cup. Why does Jesus appear to be so weak in front of this cup? Second, is the reality of Jesus' suffering expressed through this cup? Third, it is what God has done and will do through this cup. But first, we turn to take a look at Jesus standing in front of this cup. The Gospel of Luke introduces Jesus as a man of prayer. He prayed regularly and mostly alone. But here is, he is different. He took Peter, John, and James with him and was troubled and grieved and said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow in the, to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Not only his disciples, but an angel came to strengthen him. And Jesus entreated God to take this cup from him. At this moment, he appeared as an exceedingly weak person. This image is quite strange, however, when we compare it with that of Jesus, which has been presented throughout the Gospel of Luke up to this point. How does Luke introduce Jesus? From chapter 7 to 9, Luke records several events as he seems to give an answer to the question, who is Jesus? Jesus heals the centurion's servant without going to the site where the servant is lying sick, Luke 7. Further, he heals a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhage for 12 years, Luke 8. However, even 
modern medicine cannot cure this hemorrhage. What does this mean? It means that Jesus is the one who is above the disease. In addition, Jesus raised the son of the widow of Nain, who was lying in a coffin in Luke 7. He also raised the dead daughter of Jairus. This means Jesus had authority to rule over, even over death. Does Jesus rule only human disease and death? No. Jesus calms the roaring waves of sea. Luke 8. It means Jesus is above nature. Then, is Jesus' dominion limited humans and nature? That is the visible word. It, beyond, it goes beyond it. Jesus subdued the legion of demon with a single command in Luke 8. This means he is the Lord, even the invisible spiritual world. So, Jesus is the ruler of both the visible and invisible worlds. But astonishingly, Jesus, Luke said, Jesus is more than that. Jesus feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes and appears in glory on, on, on the mountain of transfiguration, Luke 9. It means he is the one who is equal to God the Lord, who gave his people Israel food and drink in the wilderness, and the God who dwells in unapproachable light. Why then, Jesus, why then does Jesus, the glorious Son of God, who dominate nature, human beings, and the invisible world, even death, appear to be so afraid of and disturbed before this cup. Why does Jesus perceive this cup as such a heavy, unbearable task that he cannot but say that he is set to the point of death? It is impossible for us to understand all the fear that Jesus had. It is a content of the fear that the Son of God has in his human nature and the mystery of the fear that the second person of Trinity held in the state of his humiliation. If we want to go a step further to the content and mystery of Christ's suffering, we should begin first by exploring what the meaning of the cup is and what background is behind this metaphor. In the scripture, the word cup is used not only in a positive, but also in a negative context. So we will begin with a positive context. The cup positively represents blessing and honor. For example, David confessed, the Lord is my shepherd, Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. David used here the word cup to express God's blessing. This word occurs not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. Once when John and James asked for the highest position in the Messianic kingdom, Jesus asked them, Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of? 
Matthew 20 and Mark 10? They gave the answer, yes. These two brothers understand the cup much the same way David understand, understood it. The word cup is, however, used in the negative sense as well. In the Old Testament, what is expressed by cup is judgment and wrath. The prophet have often used the cup in the negative way to express God's judgment, wrath, and curse. We turn Isaiah 51, first verse 17 and 20. Awake, awake, stand up, Jerusalem, which hath drink, drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. Thou hast drunken the dregs of the cup of, of trembling and wrung them out. Verse 20, thy son have fainted. They lie at the head of all the street as a wild viewer in a net. They are full of fury and a fury of the Lord, of the Lord and rebuke thy God. Continue, verse 21 through 23. Therefore hear now this, thou afflicted and drunken with, but with not with wine. Thus said the Lord, the Lord, and thy God that pleadest the course of his people. Behold, I have taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink it again but I will put it into the hand of them that afflict thee. In this verse, Isaiah expresses God's judgment on Israel as drinking the cup of the wrath of God. And on the contrary, the recovery of Israel as taking the cup of his wrath out of his, their hands. For whom is this cup prepared? As we have just seen, sorry, uh, as we have just seen, Isaiah first said that Jerusalem will drink from the cup. Jeremiah uh, declares also, for the Lord our God has put us to silence and gives us the word of God to drink because we have sinned against the Lord, Jeremiah 8 and 9. Ezekiel said, O holy word, Jerusalem will drink the cup of her sister, O holy Samaria. Thus said the Lord God, Thou shalt drink of thy sister's cup deep and large. Thou shalt be left to scorn and had in rice, and it contains much. David said that it's the, that it's the Lord's people who drank the wine, which make them stagger. Psalm 60. In these verses, the cup represents the wrath of God that fell first upon Samaria, then upon Jerusalem, and later upon all the people of God. But this is not all. Jeremiah says the range of people who had to drink the cup will be expanded. We turn Jeremiah 25, verses 15 through 26. For thus says the Lord, God of Israel unto me, take the wine cup of this fury at my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send thee to drink it. And they shall drink and be moved and be mad because of the sword that I have sent among them. 
Then took I the cup at the Lord's hand and made all the nation to drink unto whom the Lord had sent me to it. Verse 18, Jerusalem and the cities of Judah and the kings of thereof and the princes thereof to make a desolation and astonishment and hissing and a curse as it is this day. Verse 19, Pharaoh the king of Egypt and his servant and his princes and all the peoples and all the mingled people because, because Egypt is the international city at that time. And the kings of the land of Uz and the kings of the land of Philistine and Ascalon and Asa and Ekelon and the remnant of Ashdod. Verse 21, Adam, Moab, and children of Ammon. 22, and all the kings of Tyrus and the kings of Sidon and the kings of Isles which are beyond the sea because the islands is connected with the sea empire of Tyrus and Sidon. Verse 23, Dedan and Dema and Tbus and all that are in the utmost corners and all the kings of Arabia and all the kings of the mingled people who dwell in the desert. 25 and 26, and all the kings of Jimri and all the kings of Elam and all the kings of Medes, all the kings of Norse and far and near one with another and all the kingdoms of the world which was, which were upon the face of the earth. The king of Sheshach shall drink after them. The Sheshach here refers to Babylon. Jeremiah is drawing a circle extending clockwise from Jerusalem the center to Babylon and beyond there. Thus, this cup represents God's wrath to fall not only on Jerusalem and Samaria, but also on all the nations, all the kingdoms of the earth. Why is that the great wrath and fears of God, anger of God given to them? For Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all the prophets, the answer is clear because of the sins of men. Although God spoke constantly through the prophets for 23 years and they did not listen and they did follow other gods and serve and worship them, so they kept provoking God to anger. Now, however, God reveals the glory of his holy justice upon the sin of Israel and world, and he expressed this by the cup of his wrath. Then what will happen if a person or nation drinks this cup of divine wrath? Those who drank this cup of wrath stagger like drunkards and become mad with fear. In the end, they become destroyed, surprised, ridiculed, and cursed. Sinners without exception, regardless of where they are individuals and nations, must drink this cup of wrath. No, I will not. Why do, would I drink that? No one could say that. Jeremiah said, you shall certainly drink, for I will call a sword upon all the inhabitants of the earth, said the Lord of hosts. Jeremiah 25, verse 26 and 29. So far, we have observed two ways how the metaphor cup is used in the scripture. What do we what do we learn when we apply this observation to the text? As Jesus prayed, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. It can be seen that Jesus was using the language of the prophets. It is certain that he thought that the cup of which they prophesied is coming. Therefore, 
Jesus did know that a deep, big, and large overflowing cup of grateful wrath of God, which should be given to Israel, Judah, and whole world when they sinned against God, was drawing near to him. It is this fear with which Jesus confronted as he prayed in Gethsemane. Here, however, the analogy between the cup in the prophecies of the prophet and the cup in the prayer of Jesus breaks down. His suffering goes far deeper. What is true reality of the suffering of Jesus? The fear Jesus felt before this cup is not the fear that normal human beings feel before biological deaths. This fear does not come either from the fact that he must die on the cross in the cruelest and most humiliating way. His fear belongs not so much to such a human dimension as to the theological one. What is it then? Two things are to be considered. One is the recognition of the seriousness of sin, and the other is the recognition of separation of the divine fellowship. Why is Jesus so afraid in front of this cup? It is because Jesus knows what sin really is. We have seen above through Isaiah and Jeremiah, and the cup of God's wrath had to drunk not only by Israel and Judah, but also by all the nations of the world, because they have all sinned. But Jesus said that the cup is not coming to them, but to him. The rest, cursed by all sinners, is converging on him. Is it then because of the concentration of people's sin that Jesus feels this fear? In other words, in former times, the cup was given to many people and many nations, but now it's converged on one person, Jesus. Of course, that's part of it. But the, for the wrath of God against the sin of all nations and people from Jerusalem to the end of the world empire then known is converging on the cross of Christ. But this is not the real reason for the fear Jesus felt. Is it because he resented the unfairness of it all? Formerly, the cup should be given actually to the sinners who sinned and to the wicked people who did evil. So it was a just punishment. But now it is given to the innocent one, Jesus. Of course, such a meaning is not excluded because Jesus is not a sinner nor a transgressor. Among the injustice experienced by human beings, there's no greater unfairness than being punished without any sin or fault to deserve it. No matter how trivial it is, such a case cannot be tolerated because it undermines human dignity. No matter how trivial, no matter how small it is. In the case of the cross, however, it is sin, not of one, not of ten, or even of a hundred, but of all the people and nation in the world converging on a single sinless person. It is truly terrible thing. With no human legal order can it be explained. 
But this is not the true reason of the fear Jesus felt. The true reason for Jesus' fear before this cup does not lie in the concentration of sin or scale of unfairness. Rather, it lies in that Jesus is able to fully recognize the consequences of sin. Why does his true awareness of sin cause fear? We can't ever understand what this means because we've never lived without sin. Because we are born in sin, we don't know what sin really is, how much God hates it, abhors it, disguised by it, and how great wrath it brings. But Jesus has no sin, therefore he fully knows what sin really is and how much God is angry with it. How can we explain that we human beings have no such true sense of sin as Jesus had? It's like uh, olfactory fatigue. Among the senses of human beings, the olfactory nerves get tired most easily. For example, when we enter a fish market or meat shop, we can smell strong odor at first, but uh, after a while we, we can because the olfactory factory sense quickly becomes dull. This is the phenomenon called olfactory fatigue. The human sense of sin is like this. All human beings, unlike workers who sell or stay in a fish market or mission, just as they cannot smell fish or meat because they live and work in all, in all time, human beings cannot sense sin because they are born grow, move, and die in an ecosystem surrounded by sin in all sides, in and out. However, sin does exist and is very serious. Sin is also like gravity. None of us can sense or feel Earth's gravity while living on Earth. But the astronauts are different. They go out to a place where there is no gravity like the Earth, when they go out to, into the space, their head don't feel gravity, but their body know it. Further, they have they stayed in a space for a long time of time and live in zero gravity. The gravitation on their body decreased, and so the bone-forming cells are suppressed, and thus bone decomposition is activated. So in a month, they lose 1% of their bones. The force of gravity acts less on their muscle, and their muscles become weak and atrophy while they were not conscious of it. Likewise, because a man is born, grows, moves, and dies in the gravitational field of sin, that is, he always lives in sin from birth to death, he cannot sense what awful effect sin affects and exerts on him. Because when a man is born again, but when a man is woken again, he experiences freedom and beauty as if he goes outside the earth and sea. At the same time, he comes to sense the existence of sin and its seriousness, which he cannot be aware of until then, just as the astronauts feel gravity more when they come back to the earth. Therefore, when we are born again, we feel the weight of sin. The Lord, however, has no sin by nature. 
so he would have been chalked up with disgust and abomination, just entering a world full of sin and death. But now, the sin of all his people in all nations in all time are converging on him. And God's wrath is focused on him. How much, how can we express the fear that must have befallen him? It was Jesus' full understanding of the nature of sin and its seriousness, which gave us the first reason why Jesus was afraid before this cup. The second reason is that he has a completely different perception of how sin affects our relationship with God. Sin blocks fellowship with God, no matter how small, no matter how trivial. Sin separates from us from God. God is holy. At the same time, God is holiness itself. That is, as for God, his existence and attributes are identical. God loves us and shines forth. At the same time, God is love and light itself. Therefore, as God love and light itself, so he is holiness itself as well. Further, God is spirit and infinite and omnipotent. God is therefore not merely holiness, but he is infinitely omnipotent and purely holy. At the same time, he has infinite power, infinite holiness itself. This means that God can never with anything, never, never with anything that is not pure, perfect holiness, no matter how small and insignificant it is. But Jesus now seeing that the great density of sin is laid on him. And he discerned that this sin separates him from this holy God. We can't ever fully understand what this means because we have never lived without sin. We don't know what sin really is and how far sin and holiness have to stand from God. And how painful and terrifying this separation is because we are born living and dying in sin. So even if a man is far from God, he thinks he's able to bear it. But not so for Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Because he is sinless, he knows with all his being what the joy and glory that the fellowship are. For he has never been separated from God, forsaken or separated from the glory of divine fellowship. Further, he has a sense like a closeness of a new ba newborn baby to his parents. He senses, therefore, he, how, what pain it is when he is forsaken by God because he has always stayed and enjoyed endless fellowship with his father without interruption and break. However, Jesus now sees ahead that the suffering of crucifixion is come near fast. He has tasted before what it means to be forsaken by the Father in heaven. During the time of this terrible suffering, his disciples were asleep. Jesus then fought alone. He is the only one who fully understands what great wrath 
God will pour out on sinner. He is therefore also the only one who knows the misery of the abandoned and the fear of the abandonment. The evidence that he is tasting this pain, this pain in advance is in his entreaty, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Then how did God respond when Jesus prayed like this? God heard the prayer of his only begotten son, but he did according to his will. The will which was hidden from, from all the ages, God treated his son Jesus as a condensed massa peccatorum, the mass of sinners and made him drink the cup of his wrath. What is more miserable is that God turned his face away from his son and turned his back on him. The whole world lose light because of this curse, wrath, and the anger of God. So it is said about nine, about now, about the sixth hour, there's darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Luke 23, verse 44. This is not a solar eclipse, as some commentators assert. No, it cannot be a solar eclipse because Jesus died on the cross during the Passover. During the Passover, the full moon emerged. What is then the cause of this darkness? This is a a supernatural work caused by God, similar to the plague of darkness that fell on Egypt during the Exodus. This wrath was unprecedented in the past and will be unmatched in, in the future. Several times, God has shown his wrath, for, for example, the flood of Noah and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and exile to Babylon. God, however, has never poured out his wrath in fullness and in completion, even when he exec executed his judgment in the past. Only twice in history, God does not with withhold his wrath, but poured it out in fullness of his justice, first of which he did to his son on the cross. Once more in the future, God will pour out his anger fully and completely. God will bring his, this wrath this time to those who do not believe in Christ. Now we turn to uh, Revelation 14 and 16, verse 14 and verse 9 to 10. And the third angel followed him, saying, with a loud voice, if a man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And Revelation 16, verses 19 through 21, we read there, and the great city 
was divided into three parts, and the cities of nation fell, and the great Babylon come, came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and they fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent, and man blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceedingly great. We have to pay attention to two things. First, to the background of this wine of wrath of God. In the book of Revelation, the plague of seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowers occur subsequently. And the next seven plagues explode from the seventh of the previous plague. But it is, notice, it is necessary to notice that in the seventh trumpet and the seventh bowl plague, the cup of God's wrath occurs. If the, the Apostle John is singing the overlapping of the eschatological plagues God pours out on the world, the wine of the wrath of God then refers to the final wrath to which nothing can be considered heavier and stronger. This is the first thing. Second, we have pay attention to, to a very particular expression, the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. Revelation 14, 10. In ancient times, the wine was mixed with water and then was drunk. Since the wine refers to God's wrath, the wine poured into a cup without any mixture means that the purity of God's wrath is 100%. Purity, 100 In other words, it means that there's no more forgiveness and grace. Just as God poured out his perfect wrath on Christ on the cross, so then he will pour out unforgiving wrath and perfect justice on all those who do not believe in Christ. Then an era emerged between the two events when the wine of God's wrath is poured out. In other words, it is an era that begins after the first event, the crucifixion, and ends with the second event, the last and final judgment. Paul calls this era the age of grace. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is the era in which we live. Why is the age in which we live called the day of salvation and the acceptable time? It is because in our days, the will of God, which even the angel not want to know which was hidden before the ages, the fully revealed through the church by the cross of Christ and his work of redemption. In this respect, the church is an inexpressibly glorious institution, and the preaching, the word of God, is an immeasurably great task and work through which the saving grace and the fullness of Christ are communicated to the world. 
What is the message of this text? There are three. First, mining the mystery of God's, uh, Christ's suffering and love thankfully. Second, taking our own sins seriously. Third, singing others respectably. First, whenever we see the cross of Christ, we should try to mine the mystery of his suffering deeper. Our Lord knows from the beginning the time to drink this cup. Jesus prayed to the Father right before the crucifixion. The time has come. It indicates the time when he is going to drink the cup of God's wrath. This is the appointed time before the foundation of the world. Even though the time to drink this cup was determined before the creation, our Lord came to this world. And Kehada's force said, has said this, quote, The incarnation of Christ shows that the innocent soul of the Son of God had to dwell in a torn tent called the flesh, and so entered into the closest union with death. This is the important part of his suffering quotient. From this fact come the most admiring treasures. He knows God's plan and accepts it. Even though he, these terrible things are planned before the foundation of the world, and he came to the world, he lived in 30 years, he began the, his public mis- ministry, and he invited tax collectors and sinners to the feast of heaven and rejoiced. While he rejoiced, he did not forget the fact that the time would come. He knew that at the time, the cup of God's fierce anger and wrath against sin would be given to him and that he should drink it. The Lord took the cup of God's wrath, the wrath of God like the wine without mixture, which will be poured out on all mankind from the fall to the end, and the cup of wrath that you and I had to drink. While he stood with fear before this cup, he saw his people being saved by his drinking of the cup and rejoiced in a way the disciples did not know and you and I did not know. Second, whatever we see sins in ourselves, we must hate as an enemy and have to be afraid to commit sins. If, if one of our sins, which we think as smallest, led Jesus to the death on the cross, how much should we be afraid of sinning? And one commits sin, regardless whether he is an individual or a nation, regardless of the age before or date to come, God's eschatological death comes upon that man who sinned. How serious should we take sin? Therefore, if we have sinned, we must repent of all our past sins. We did not know that our sins are so serious and the consequences of our sins and responsibility so great before we met the cross of Christ. Third, when we see our neighbor's and their transgressions and sins, 
we should have compassion and respect at the same time. Why should we respect them while affirming that they are still sinners? Because God, our Holy Father, gave up his son in order to save them for his namesake. Even if someone is smallness that or at least worthy in our eyes, but yet in God's sight, he is worthy the cross of Christ. Therefore, we must respect them. Furthermore, when we see someone not believing now, we should have compassion on him. We should, why should we compassion on him? For God will once again pour out the cup of his wrath on those who do not believe in Christ to the end, just as he poured out his full wrath on Jesus Christ on the cross. Even in a such a terrible reality, unbelievers know nothing, and they are under control of Satan and darkness. Brothers, you must how important it is know the, Christ, the cross of Christ deeply and to digest theology comprehensively so that we can preach the gospel in confidence and in power of the Holy Spirit. William Perkins said once, quote, Therefore, when preachers want to hold up God's scepter before the people and to hold out the, the word, which is said, as it were, the arm of God to pull men from the bondage of devils to the kingdom of Christ, then it is time to say, Lord, thy kingdom come, quote him. Therefore, if we see some lost soul among our families, friends, neighbors, and colleagues, we must pray for them, have mercy on them. And if there are still people who have not heard the gospel of the cross, we must strive to preach the name of Jesus Christ to them. Amen. We pray. God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank Thee for letting us know an aspect of the mystery of Christ's suffering and remind, reminding us of the seriousness of our sins. We are thankful that Thou gave us this great gospel and Thou hast called us to preach this gospel. Give us wisdom and understanding more to grasp thy blessings in paradox, the fierce wrath and tender mercies of God, the suffering and salvation through Christ, and the rebuking and comforting from the Holy Spirit. And bless us all faculty, staff, and students of PLTS with zeal and courage so that we faithfully serve thy word and gospel until the day our Lord comes again. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.